This is Tom Fox. Welcome to the Hill Country Authors Podcast. Not only is the Texas Hill Country the most beautiful place in Texas, but it also has some of the best writers in Texas. On this podcast series, I'm going to explore writers in literally all genres of writing, both fiction and nonfiction. I hope you'll join me in this journey. Today, mystery writer Mark Pryor joins me to talk about his work. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and you're in for a real treat today because I'm in for a real treat today. I have with me fellow attorney Mark Pryor. But unlike my good self, who focuses on nonfiction writing, Mark is a prolific fiction writer around mystery. So Mark, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate you inviting me on. So you really have an interesting and somewhat varied professional background. Could you highlight that for us? Yeah. So originally I'm from England and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do when I was younger. Tried being an airline pilot. That didn't work at all. Ended up as a journalist um, on a local newspaper in Essex, which is the southeastern part of the country. Worked as a crime reporter there for a few years before moving to America. Did some freelancing in North Carolina and then eventually decided to go to undergrad, get my undergrad journalism degree and then went on to law school. Went to law school again in North Carolina and coming out of there got a job in Dallas at a civil law firm which was miserable and then got hired by the Austin by the Travis County DA's office in Austin and did that for about 15. Could you give us a couple of highlights of your work at the Travis County DA's office but for those listeners who may not know what is the Travis County DA's office? The Travis County DA's office is based in Austin. It's the uh, division that basically takes cases from the police and prosecutes them. So I was a felony prosecutor for 15 years, handled everything from juvenile possession of marijuana cases through to first chairing a non-death capital murder case, which I suppose probably would be the highlight, one of the highlights of my career. It sounds like the, the most difficult, challenging kind of case to handle. And usually the, the capital murder ones are. In my case, I got very lucky in that the, the murder took place outside. It's a double murder. took place outside of a strip club which happened in the parking lot. And that strip club happened to have 14 different cameras pointing at the parking lot. So the whole crime was, and every detail was captured on film. And my closing argument was essentially just playing the movie of what happened. I also prosecuted a cold, a woman who was murdered in 1986. We didn't try the case until 2011, which was, that was quite a highlight. And that's, that was actually filmed by 48 Hours. So you can look me up on 48 Hours and the, the intro is me riding on a horse, which is pretty hilarious. They like the whole Englishman in cowboy boots in Texas. Something about the midday sun comes to mind. Uh, <laughs> but uh, tell us about your uh, current practice at Kofer and Connolly. Yeah, so about probably about a year ago, a couple of former colleagues, Joffrey Puri and Rick Kofer, approached me about joining them at their criminal defense firm, which they'd had up and running for about a year, two years at the time. And I pushed them off. And then six months ago, they came back to me and said, come on, it'll be fun. Come be a defense lawyer with us and I was a prosecutor with them. They're good guys and I knew they'd run a good business and they laid out the details and the specifics and it just seemed like too good of an opportunity to miss. Yeah, so now I'm a criminal defense attorney. And you probably can't tell us too much about this case, but you're a defense attorney in an incredibly high profile case involving a woman named Caitlin Armstrong. Could you at least give us some parameters of why that case is so high profile? 
Yeah, there's a there, yes. I, I am an attorney. I shall actually be going to visit her in the jail later on today after we've spoken. There's a gag order from the judge that prevents us from giving any specifics. But we've been on the case for a few months now. It's incredibly interesting, very high profile, as you say, and we look forward to doing a good job. One of the reasons I find it to be so high profile is I'm a former cyclist. Austin is a hotbed of cycling for a lot of reasons, Lance Armstrong notwithstanding. And this is very high profile in the U.S. and perhaps even international cycling, cycling community. So I think it's a very high profile case. A lot of people know about it. And I've been able to read a little bit about it, so I'm going to be very interested to see how it progresses going forward. But we're not here to talk about your legal background and legal practice, although I could do that for probably a long time. We're here to talk about you as a mystery writer. We're going to get to your latest book in a little bit because that's how I was introduced to your work. But could you tell us when you started writing mysteries, either for fun or for profit? Yeah, so I actually began when I was working at the civil firm in Dallas. I was not enjoying the work and I needed some sort of stimulation or some sort of outlet. And so I wrote a mystery novel set in and tried to sell that and it went nowhere. And so I was like, I'll just try one more and wrote another one and tried to get an agent and sell that and nothing happened. And I thought, what's the harm? I'll try a third. And I wrote a third one and same deal. I'm, uh, over the course of a couple of years, I'm racking up several hundred rejections from agents and it was almost a compulsion at that point sort of every rejection is one step closer to acceptance kind of cult mentality and then I wrote my fourth book in set in Paris and immediately got interest from agents and signed with Anne Collette of the Reese Agency and yeah she sold it to 7th Street Books for a, in a three book deal so that was kind of the launch for the Hugo Marston series. So tell us a little bit about Hugo Marston. Yeah, Hugo is, he's a, the character is head of security at the U.S. Embassy in Paris. A random gig that I gave him just because I, the thing to understand about a first novel is that no one really expects to get it published. After three books being flushed down the toilet, and I, I was writing this book, I felt free to make things up and not worry about whether they would be fact-checked or accurate particularly. My imagination was running wild, and so I invented this job for him, and I invented what I thought this job might be. He's a good-looking, charming, very smart bookish rather than action-oriented detective. He solves things with his mind rather than his fists or a gun. And uh, he's an amalgam, a mixture of my dad's maybe, in that he's very thoughtful and not judgmental at all, but also some actual FBI profilers that I met and worked with at the DA's office. That is his previous career. Hugo, he was a, is a retired FBI profiler, which I've always found to be a fascinating profession. How many books were in the Hugo Marston series? Oh, there are nine, seven of which are set in Paris. One is in England and one is in Barcelona. Why the French setting? My usual response, Tom, is that I point out my friends who set their books in East Texas or upstate New York. And then I ask, who has the most fun doing research? <laughs> Clearly, I do. I try to go for every book. You go to Paris for every book because every book has a different angle. And I love the city of Paris. I love France. I know I'm just generating excuses to go there. Fortunately, my wife does not mind in the slightest. It's so rich in history. It's such a beautiful place. It's such a walkable city. There are endless tales to be told there, and that's why. You have started a new series, and we're going to, for those watching, it is Die Around Sundown. And I'm not quite sure how I came across this book, whether I saw a review of it or one of the newsletters I get, but I bought it. 
And I think I bought it for Murder by the Book because it's signed. No, I haven't met you, so I know I didn't get you to personally sign it. <laughs> but it, it has a detective entitled Henri Lafort. And probably the first thing that attracted me to it was you said, or it was said in the blurb about it, he was a World War I vet. And I'm endlessly fascinated with World War I vets because of not simply what they went through in World War I, but what happened to them after. What we used to call, Shell then became combat fatigue and then became PTSD. And I've written, I've read rather lots of novels about English vets and their experiences after returning to England after the war. But I haven't read only one Frenchman, and he was actually a Basque, but he fought in the French army. But you have another historical angle, which I have never seen, and that's equally intriguing. And it was July 1940. So I wanted to start by asking you to explain to the audience of the significance of July 1940 in Paris and why you picked that time. Yeah. So that was when the Germans essentially strolled in to Paris with their guns tucked under their arms or slung over their shoulders virtually no resistance. The strong, brave, powerful, beautiful people of France, of Paris, gave up and let the Germans into their city. So, when I talk about my other books, people ask me, why Paris? What's so great about Paris? And July 1940 is what is great about Paris. If they had fought, if they had resisted more, which the Americans and the English make fun of them for not doing, the beautiful city that we know now would have been, at least in part, destroyed. I'm ever grateful for their... Cowardice is not the right word. The relinquishment of the city, because in doing so, they preserved it for us. But it also sets up a bizarre situation where you have invaders who, who didn't take the city by force so much, living alongside Parisians who are trying to lead their normal lives as best they can and live, along, live alongside these people. The various tensions, the various relationships. Are you a collaborative? collaborator, what does that mean? One of the, the bizarre situations, Henri finds himself, and he's very anti-German, he just wants to, he's a policeman, he wants to do his job, he hates that they're there in his city, so he's very anti-them, but then he's required to investigate the murder of one of their officers. And that raises the question, well, is he being a French policeman, or is he being a lackey for the Germans? And that's something he really struggles with. The, I've read several novels that occurred in the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War set place in the South. And in those novels, the clear sense of failure, of being the loser, of having been defeated, it permeates those novels. I got a little sense of that in your novel, but I also got an American's perspective of a Parisian, which is, we're Parisians and you're not. We don't care whether you invaded us or not. You're in our town and there's a reason you're not a Parisian and it's that you're not. And was, uh, I don't want to, so I wanted to maybe explore that that seemed to go on at the same time. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a sense of perverse snobbery, exactly as you point out, which is you may be, you may be the ones in charge with a gun and what have you, but I will look down my nose at you. And when you ask me where the bookshop is, I will point you in the wrong direction. Small acts of retaliation, of sticking up for themselves. The French have always been very proud of their city, quite rightly. And there's a certain sense of their own identity that is wrapped up in other cities and in other parts of the country, in the Basque. And that was not going to disappear. 
with the Germans, even though they were there, they were looting, helping themselves to everything. And the Parisians, to the best of their ability, tried to remain Parisians. There was an interesting character, or a minor character, or at least maybe not a minor character, but he was an African-American. And the book I read before yours took place during World War II, but it also had an African-American character who wanted to stay in France after the end of World War II. So I wanted to ask you about the African-American military experience in World War I and why an African-American would want to stay in France who is not named Josephine Bell. Yeah, and this is one of the interesting thing, things I found about writing this book was reading a lot of history and just having my mind blown by what I didn't know. And then I read about the African-Americans who came over to fight in World War I and how poorly they were treated by their own side during the fighting and more particularly afterwards being expected to lay down their lives in a foreign country, go back to America, and then being treated as second-class citizens. Of course, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Why would they do that? Why would they want that? Especially when they found themselves being treated much better by the people they'd gone over to, to fight for. And so there were very many people who stayed after World War I, African-Americans, looking for a better life, in many ways finding it, until, of course, World War II. The other thing that I found interesting about the time setting of July 1940 was obviously the Germans were in charge. We hadn't had the perhaps worst of the occupation as yet. There were certainly people being shunted off to camps, then putting cattle carts and sent to German concentration camps, but we didn't have that in full force yet. And so it almost seemed, it was early on in the occupation, the worst of the excesses had not yet occurred, but people were trying to feel their way through this new situation. And I certainly found that with Henri. But you've also got, almost as a character, the Louvre. So I was wondering if you can explain what, not what the Louvre is, but what the Germans were doing to it and how that factored in or played into your... Yeah, so this again was something I didn't know coming into researching this book was that they, the Germans closed the Louvre very quickly when they got there. And not just the Louvre, they did the same to movie theaters, to other museums, essentially shutting down the lifestyle, they did reopen everything a few months later to try and restore a sense of normalcy to win back the hearts and minds of the Parisians to some degree. But of course, one of the main reasons they shut down these museums was so they could help themselves. The amount of looting, the organization that went into the looting was very obviously disturbing to me, but also very interesting because you had very senior people trying to help themselves to great pieces of, of course, not doing their work themselves. And then you have lower down the people who are boxing up paintings and sculptures and what have you, also helping themselves to things, which is a manner of thievery. There's no honor among them. If I'm thieving for you, then I'll thieve for myself too. And so the setting was interesting in that I wonder what would happen if a detective is required to investigate a murder and is not allowed to go to the crime scene, which is the case for Henri. And as a writer, generally, the idea is that you put your character in a situation and then you make that situation worse and then you make it worse again. The interest and the tension comes from him trying to overcome these obstacles. Knowing the, as a prosecutor, knowing the importance of a crime scene, one of the biggest obstacles to an investigator I know would be being denied that access. The protagonist or main character, Henri, is a World War I veteran. And I wanted to not really explore the plot around that involves him, the plot device, but really 
What was the effect of World War One on? Does he have what we call shell shock? He obviously, it has impacted his life. But how did you try to draw out his World War One experience that he's still having to live with and through every day? I think every soldier who goes through combat like that comes out incredibly altered physically, maybe mentally, emotionally, feelings of guilt, shame, secrets to hide. And Henri's no different. He has a condition called misophonia, which is a sensitivity to certain noises. Not in the sense that most people don't like certain noises, but in the sense that he will lose his temper and rage if some noise irritates him. But he's not sure if that comes from the First World War or if it's inherent with him. So that's something he explores. When you say noise, you had some great examples in the book, and I don't want to say them. I want you to describe how small or in that the normal person may think a noise is that can have this impact on him and re- literally drive him to rest. Yeah, the comparison I give, and just when everybody knows that misophonia is a real condition, it's something that I have and that my daughter has. And the comparison I give is my wife is a vegetarian, so she will not eat fish or meat just because she doesn't like the taste and she won't do it. And my mother, if you give her seafood uh, and she eats it, she, her throat will close up and she will likely die. So the former is, oh, yes, I can't stand this, the sound of nails on chalk, chalkboard or whatever. The second one is a physical response to noise. I myself had to exit a theater when one of my children was doing a performance because there was this five-year-old right behind me crinkling a, a packet of chips. And my blood pressure went up so mad, I so high, and I was just so angry, irrationally, of course, that instead of throttling a five-year-old, I decided to leave the movie theater, which I think was a good decision. And Henri has the same thing, although interestingly, writing the book, I discovered that there are a lot more irritations these days than back then. And the examples Henry Henri has to suffer through are his, the person he lives with, Nicola. She can't eat an apple in his presence. She can't eat a raw carrot or celery in his presence. And it's something that they've adjusted to the same way my family and thousands of families in America adjust to when there's a misophonia sufferer. I, like many Americans, have loved the George Simeon series with Mark Gray. And when I read your book, particularly your descriptions of the police headquarters and the physical layout and walking around, I could almost see Margaret walking around and you really struck me. I don't know if that was conscious or not, but it, I really had a sense of visiting a place another friend goes to and you weren't writing in the uh, Simeon style, but I felt like I knew the buildings because of that. And the, so how did you incorporate, it seemed to me the police administration building was almost a character when he had his own office, for instance. So could you talk about that a little bit? I, honestly, I think we should just end the interview with that, uh, with that compliment. Thank you. It's just, we're done. That's all I need. For it's, an, it's imagination, actually. I've not been inside it. I've been outside it, walked around it, and been inside another French police station in, in Paris that the downstairs reception area is as I describe it, but I don't know what it's like in, in the main building. That really is imagination and quite possibly from reading those books myself. Yeah, I don't know what else to say, but thank you for that comparison. Can I ask you if Henri will continue to live in other novels or where you might be headed with your writing? Yeah, the second Henri book comes out in August of next year. It's called The Dark Edge of Night and is, I think it's set right before Christmas. I'm having to, I'm imagining this series going on for a while. My, my problem with that is 
the Second World War only lasted so long, so I can't leap too far ahead, otherwise I'll run out of wartime. So we've moved to right before Christmas, and there's a murder, obviously, that Henri is required to investigate, but also a missing person. The tension in that book comes from having to do two jobs, and again, under the eye of the German authorities, just because I love that conceit so much of a man trying to do a job with his neck on the line. So yeah, The Dark Edge of Night comes out in August of next year, and hopefully there will be many more to come. We are getting near the end of our time, Mark, but I have a bonus question I want to ask you, and I think I discovered this in doing a little research on your background, and this is as a journalist. I think I saw that you had actually reported on the Romanian Revolution, and by that, when Romania lost the dictatorship and became a more free country, even if it's not now, I've never met anyone who was in Romania at that point in time. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to ask you what, if I had all that right, what was that like? Yeah, you do. You have it right. So we were, I was on my local newspaper and they gave us a sort of broad brush to, to cover interesting stories. And there was a local business owner who was flying supplies to an orphanage in Romania at that time. And he asked me if I wanted to get on the plane and fly over with them and then have a look around. And of course, at the time, I said, absolutely. I didn't even change my mind when we took off at three in the morning in the field. And, uh, and he went left instead of right straight into the plowed part of the field. We basically got out of the small plane and pushed it back onto the runway and took off. That was not a bad omen for the trip. We were there for almost a week, I think. I visited several orphanages, went to market, saw the long lines of people waiting for food. It was one of the most fascinating trips of my life. It was just incredible. So, Mark, now we are near the end of our time. So, before we leave, if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself as an author, yourself as a criminal offense lawyer, and, of course, your book, where would be the best places for them to go? Yeah, if they want to learn about my law practice and my colleagues, kofaconnolly.com. The law firm is called Kofa and Connolly. Just Google that. For the book staff and more about me, markpriorbooks.com has links to everything and should tell you everything you need to know. So we've been visiting with Mark Pryor, author of Die Around Sundown, a fabulous book, first in hopefully a long series of mysteries set in Paris during the occupation. Mark, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue this conversation. Tom, thank you so much for having me. I hope so too. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Hill Country Authors Podcast. If you have a book or are an author and like to come on my podcast, please let me know. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. The Hill Country Authors Podcast is available on the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network. And where all great podcasts are played.